Well, we look today to the book of Esther, chapter 4, and we look there for an example of godly courage in the midst of frightening times. Part of the reason we're doing this, I probably don't have to tell you, is that there is much fear circling the world, our nation, and our city right now. And God's people need in it an example of courage, an example of godliness. But that's not the only reason. In as much as there is fear circling about right now in this temporary season, it's true that tomorrow there will be something else to be afraid of. And the day after that, there will even be something else to be afraid of. It's also true that our generation is, it seems, more laden with fear and anxiety than the generations before it. It doesn't seem like that should be. We have more prosperity than the generations before us, and yet we suffer from fear and anxiety even more. What generation before us could buy for $100 a video camera that functions as a doorbell to put on their door so that they can see what's going on outside their house and keep them safe? Nobody before us could do that. We can do that. And yet, we're filled with more anxiety and fear than the generations before us. We have better car seats to protect our kids than our parents had to protect us. And yet we are more anxious over our children than the generations before us were about theirs. What's going on here? Part of what's going on is our culture is slowly forgetting God's presence and his sovereignty over all of life. And when you have forgotten the hand of God that protects you through all things, when you've forgotten that your body is not your own and your soul even is not your own, you have to fend for yourself. And that is frightening. This book, on the other hand, the Bible that we're going to look into in a few moments, was written to bring you into a relationship with God that is filled with fear and joy. And I don't mean the same kind of fear when I say fear. No, I mean delighted trembling before his great glory and his great care for his people. A thrilling joy before him great worship before him, and walking faithfully in all of his ways. We have all failed to do this. We only have Jesus Christ standing as our mediator, earning forgiveness for our failure to do this. As the book of Romans you read this week says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, right? Not only have we all sinned, we've all failed to give God glory as he deserves, but we are saved. We are justified by Jesus Christ who offered himself in our place. And as a room that is largely filled with people that has placed our faith in this Jesus, we ask now, okay, what's it look like to follow him? How can we be faithful to him, to our Lord that has saved us, when the moment around us is scary? The Bible helps with that in a lot of ways. One of the ways, the book of Philippians says, uh, to keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that we have. That means when you see somebody walking faithfully, you you watch that and you say, okay, that's what it looks like to follow Jesus. I need to do that. We do that when we just rummage through the church history to find faithful missionaries who have brought the gospel to many places. One of the ways we do that is we look at the faithful examples given to us in the Old and New Testament. So we look in the book of Esther today. We are going to see a conversation that happens between two courageous and wise characters. And in that conversation, we're going to see just a picture of what it looks like to follow Jesus courageously in frightening times. As we do that, we're going to see three examples, and I'm going to try to apply each of those three examples 
uh, two, two different scenarios, one for you adults and one for you kids in the room. We got kids in the room today, which you know how excited that makes me. And so I'm going to walk through two scenarios, one that an adult might realistically be in tomorrow and one that a child might realistically be in tomorrow that would be scary. And then we're going to say, okay, what does the courage we see here look like in those two situations? Here's the situation for adults. One of the scariest things about following Jesus, I think, though we don't realize it, is the call to proclaim the gospel to our friends and loved ones. And at first glance, you might think, oh, that doesn't sound very scary. But then if I asked how often you proclaimed the gospel to your friends and loved ones, you might then look at it and say, oh, actually, yeah, that's why I don't do it very often. It's kind of scary. We're not afraid of being thrown in jail for proclaiming the gospel here in the United States. But we are afraid of being embarrassed for it. And that's the way American culture is set up. There's no physical danger for talking about Jesus. But you might socially become that Jesus guy at the office that everybody is a little irritated with. You might get embarrassed in the conversation because the other guy knows more than you know, and so he shames you and embarrasses you. You might get ridiculed for sharing your faith. You may be lowered on that social hierarchy in whatever group that you're in because you're that Jesus guy. Those threats are real. And for fear of those threats, we often fail to share the gospel. So let's say that you've got a close friend that you know is not a Christian, and you have been praying for an opportunity to bring the gospel to them. And you're sitting together talking, and in kind of a hostile but kind of a curious way, your friend says, you know, I just don't know what to think about God sometimes. And boom, light goes off in your head. Oh, There's an open door, right? I'm going to run through that, try to bring the gospel to this person, but that is frightening at the same time. So we're going to talk about that moment right there. Kids, here's the situation you guys can be thinking of. Realistically, this could happen to any child tomorrow. Let's say a new kid moves to your neighborhood, two or three years older than you, about six inches taller than you, and really cool. And this new kid in the neighborhood kind of likes you. So y'all are becoming friends. You're like, man, I got this cool new friend. He's older than me. Like, this is awesome. You're riding your bikes through the neighborhood one day, and you don't really know much about this new friend that you have. You're getting to know each other, hoping it turns into a good friendship, especially because this guy's really cool and he's bigger than you. You're riding your bikes through the neighborhood, and you look over, and both of you realize that another child in the neighborhood has left his bike outside. And it's a really cool bike. And your new friend says to you, stops his bike, and he says, hey, let's steal that bike. Your parents have taught you not to steal, and so you know that's not a good idea. So you're nervous. Your friend sees that you're nervous. And so he rears his shoulders back, makes a scary face at you, balls up his fist, and says, you better help me. You better not get me into trouble. And you're terrified. Is that scary? Yeah? Okay. Two scary situations. Now we'll look at God's examples he gives us of what courage looked like in scary situations, and we'll try to apply it to that. Here's the story of Esther before we dive into it. God's people are are in a situation where everything's wrong. Everything's upside down, right? They're supposed to be living in Israel, the promised land. And they're supposed to be living under a wise and God-fearing king who is a descendant of David. That's the way this thing was supposed to be set up. So you got your promised land. Everybody's living there. We have this wise, God-fearing king above us. And he's ruling in justice, so we're all flourishing and everything is going great. That's what's supposed to happen. 
Reality is they're not faithful to their covenant with God. Another army comes in, uh, basically captures them, totes them off to another land called Babylon. So they're not even living in their nation anymore. Then another nation comes and conquers Babylon. So now they're living in Persia under Persian rule. Not only are they not in their homeland, but they are living under a king who worships false gods and is a complete fool. He throws a feast for 150 days. That's how we're introduced to this king. And then when that feast is over, he throws a feast for seven days. Gets no ruling done during this time. He's so easily manipulated that his wicked advisors can come in and convince him to do all manner of foolish and wicked things. This is their king now, the most powerful man in the world. So nothing is right. Wrong land, wrong king, wrong everything. And in this scary situation, the enemy is still scheming. There is a wicked advisor of the king named Haman. And he hates a Jewish man named Mordecai. Hates him so bitterly that he builds gallows just for Mordecai. And then he convinces the king to execute Mordecai. But that's not enough for him. He also decides to bribe the king and convince him that on a certain day, every Jew in the Persian Empire must be killed. So the king issues this decree on such and such a day, all Persians, let's all rise up. I mean, this is the whole known world at this time. Let's all rise up and let's kill our Jewish neighbors. Complete extinction of the Jewish people. The decree goes out. So if you're Mordecai, you're looking at gallows that are being built for you to be hanged on. And you're looking at the extinction of you and your people and the date stamped on the calendar. That's about the scariest situation that you could be in. I mean, we're talking a Holocaust-level attack on the Jewish people. The first example we see is Mordecai's response to such scary and frightening news, which on one hand makes sense. On the other hand, might be the exact opposite of what we would do. This is Esther 4, verses 1 through 3. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went into the midst of the city and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was a great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. So Mordecai's response and the response of many of the Jewish people is to turn to mourning. They weep over the tragedy before them. And the simple example we have here is that tragedy calls for mourning. Now you may be looking at me and saying, Dave, you're preaching common sense at me. But if we look around enough, I think we'll see that this is a virtue lost in our culture today. So what Mordecai does, he, he has some specific signs of grief here. He puts ash on himself, he tears his clothes, and he puts sackcloth on himself. You're wondering, what, why does he do that? Well, when you die, this is morbid, but it's real. When you die, your body turns to ash, right? And your clothes begin to rot around you. 
And so when terrible news comes, especially the news of someone dying, the way that they would identify with the dead is to go ahead and tear their clothes now and go ahead and cover their body with ash now. This is similar to everybody wearing black at a funeral and you look around and it just looks so dark and dreary because we're identifying with how bad this is. That's how they would do that. Then they would put on sackcloth, which you might think of like a burlap sack and how uncomfortable that would be. They put it on as a way of just being uncomfortable and saying, this is awful. He goes and he lets out a loud cry in front of everybody in public and all through the empire. Every time they get the decree, the Jews lift up their voice and they weep. This is not a one-time thing for God's people. From Genesis to Revelation, we see the pattern. God's people know how to mourn. We know how to weep. God's people are familiar with tears. We read recently in our Bible reading plan the story of Isaac finding his wife. And at the very end of that story, it's always so moving every time I read it, he meets his wife, he rejoices in his wife, and then it says, and Isaac was finally comforted after the death of his mother. His mother had died quite a time before. Finally, upon meeting his wife, he's comforted. He's been mourning for that long. When Aaron dies in the wilderness, which you'll read in a few months, they mourn for him for 40 days. We read together Psalm 42 recently, right, where there is a warrior, right? This is a guy that can shoot arrows, a warrior out to war. And he says, my tears have been my food day and night. Can you imagine a Navy SEAL? saying, when I was out to war, my tears were my food day and night. A green beret saying, I cried constantly when we were at war. You see how lost that virtue is on us today. It goes on and on through. You can read in the Gospels of people weeping. Jesus even weeps and mourns in the passage we read earlier. And in the end, in Revelation, the martyrs in heaven, these are people brave enough to lay down their lives for the Gospel. They are seen in Revelation 5 crying out to God, how long until you avenge us? These are not cowards. These are people who gave their lives for the Gospel, crying out to God. So let this example here in Mordecai crush any sense that to be brave is not to cry. That to weep is somehow to be cowardly. No, the bravest people of God in the scriptures shed tears constantly. Now this is the opposite of the spirit of our age. We have been taught to react to bad news with outrage, right? You see what the other political party is up to next, and you're supposed to react with outrage, right? You, you see something about an issue you care about. For me, the number of babies we are slaughtering through abortion, and we're trained to react with that to outrage. We see protests turn into riots, and we've been trained to react with anger and outrage. Whatever the bad news is, we're trained to react with this with outrage. Part of the reason we react with so much rage to bad news in our culture is that we have forgotten how to mourn over bad news. We've forgotten how to weep over bad news. Jesus says, out of overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. If your heart is in great grief over something, and you get a whole people together who are upset about something and they don't know how to mourn over it. And then with a technology like Twitter, you connect all their brains and hearts to each other. They don't have a good way to mourn over bad news. All of their hearts are connected to each other. And what are you going to get? You're going to get 
Twitter. You're going to get the mess that we have, the virtual that we are throwing at each other online right now. Part of this is because we have lost the ability to mourn over bad news. So the point here again is that tragedy calls for mourning. That's the right way to respond to bad news. Maybe one way to say it is that in our lifetimes, there are probably four or five news stories that you'll see that are worthy of shedding real tears over. For my generation, 9-11 was the first really bad day in the news. I remember watching that TV coverage all day, and I didn't know how to cry for my country. And so I sat there watching it, and I watched live as that first tower fell, and nobody saw it coming, and I almost threw up. And looking back, if I had known how to weep for my country, I don't think I would have almost thrown up. I think I would have had a healthy way to express the grief in my heart. How much better we would handle bad news if we would just lead ourselves to cry over it. Okay, kids, remember that scenario we talked about? The big kid is trying to bully you into stealing that bike, right? Well, what does what we just learned mean for that? Well, it means that some things are worth crying over. If you think you've got a friend in this guy and he turns out to be a bully, he turns out to not be a good friend, and when it's all said and done, you've lost a friendship and you're home now telling your parents about it, that's worth crying over. You don't have to hold back tears about that. Now, one of the big lessons you guys are learning right now is that not everything is worth crying over, right? Self-control is one of the fruits of the Spirit. Your mom sending you to bed early is not worth crying over, right? Not getting the dessert that you wanted, that's not worth crying over. But some things are worth crying over. When something big and bad happens, you lose a friend, somebody you love dies, that's the time to turn the tears on, that's the time to let the tears flow. Parents, this means something for you, too, when you're teaching your kids. It is tempting, isn't it, just to train your kids not to cry at all, right? They cry over everything, and it's so tempting to be like, you know what, just, just don't cry ever. My life would be so much easier if you just never cry. That, we're tempting to train our kids in that way. We should not teach our kids not to cry. We should teach our kids what is worth crying over, because they will one day, God willing, be God-fearing adults who need courage in difficult times, Part of that courage is weeping over the sorrows in their lives, and we've got to train them in that. Self-control is a fruit of the Spirit, but emotional hardness is not a fruit of the Spirit. We've got to see the difference. Adults, what does that mean if you were trying to bring the gospel to a friend? What does it mean to follow Mordecai's example of weeping? It means that you should be emotionally invested in your friend's eternity. If you want to bring the gospel to this friend, your heart is going to have to realize that without a turn from their current path, they are destined to destruction forever. Your heart's got to be attached to that. If you're, if you're not behind the scenes letting that weigh heavily on you, maybe even shedding tears over the state that your friend is in, well, it's more likely that conversation is not going to go well. It's going to turn into an argument. Your pride might rear up. The whole thing might go poorly because you're not emotionally invested in them and in their eternity. So the lesson here is that we aren't trying to detach emotionally from the scary things in our lives. We are trying to do the right thing even when it is difficult. So that's the first point. Tragedy calls for mourning. There are times when it is right to weep. It is times when it's right for God's people to cry. 
As the story goes on, there is one glimmer of hope for the Jewish people. Somehow, in God's mighty hand of providence, this young Jewish girl named Esther has become queen of Persia, the wife of the king. And he really seems to favor her and want to give her what she wants. Now, he does not know that she herself is one of the Jewish people. She herself is one of the people that he has decreed the destruction of. But she could go before him, out herself as one of the Israelites, and say, husband, king, even I am one of the people you have decreed the destruction of. Would you, would you change your heart on this? Would you spare us? She could go before him and do this. Her uncle, Mordecai, knows this, so they begin sending messages back and forth, and he's trying to encourage her to go before the king and appeal for God's people. But she doesn't want to do it. She's scared. She says, well, hey, now, if I go into the king's presence without being invited, and he hasn't invited me for a month into his presence, the penalty for that is immediate execution. I could die for doing that unless he extends to me the golden scepter, which is, is rare. I'm putting my life on the line just by doing this. And, and what, if he doesn't, what if it doesn't work? And she's just terrified. We see in their exchange a great courage, even in uncertainty. Let's skip to verse 13. We'll see what Mordecai and Esther say to each other. Verse 13 says, Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise from the Jews for another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you or not you have come into the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go. Gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days, day or night. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. The words of the Lord written to give us courage. Notice here the uncertain courage that they have. Mordecai is not saying, Esther, God made you queen so that you can save the Jewish people today. He says, who knows, maybe God made you queen so that you could save the Jewish people today. And Esther does not say, I go and I know this plan is going to work and my life is going to be spared. She says, if I perish, I perish. Now, it's hard for us to see this because we know how the story ends, so we've got an unfair advantage over them. But remember, they don't know how the story ends. And neither of them presume that their plan will work. This is a model of godly courage in very uncertain times. Neither of them are guilty of what is called presumption, which often masquerades around as faith in the church. Now, faith is when God makes you a promise and you believe in that promise. That's what faith is. He makes you a promise. You don't see it come true yet, but you believe that his promises are going to come true. Presumption is when God has not promised you something, but you go ahead and believe it anyway. This would be what Esther and Mordecai are doing if they leave saying, we know, what, we know that God is going to bless us here right now. They try to positive think themselves into this thing working out when the reality is they don't know what's going to happen. 
God's promises to his people are that if we will trust Jesus for forgiveness of sins, we will be forgiven for all of our sins. And that at the end of all of this, every single one of God's people will be kept safely into eternity. We will dwell there forever with Jesus and ultimate happiness, eternal life forever. The schemes of the wicked are ultimately doomed, but we're also promised that along the way there is famine, persecution, nakedness, danger, sword, trial, tribulation, all kinds of hardships to get there. So yes, we're going to a glorious place, but we are going along a dark road to get there. And that means if you want to do something courageous for the Lord, it may work out or it may not. Your eternity is guaranteed, but your plan may not work out the way that you want it to. Sometimes in the Christian life, you are the prophet Daniel who goes into the lion's den and is miraculously delivered. And sometimes you are one of the prophets that Queen Jezebel rounded up and killed. Sometimes you're Billy Graham preaching to millions of people and watching tons of them respond in faith. And sometimes you're Jim Elliott preparing to bring the gospel to one tribe for years and being murdered the day that you meet them. Sometimes your plan works out, and sometimes your plan does not. What's the right thing to do in moments like that? The right thing to do is to say along with the brave Esther, if I perish, I perish. But I'm gonna do what God has called me to do. I'm going to do the right thing. This completely destroys our generation's tendency toward presumptuous positive thinking. We love to be inspired that everything is going to work out great in the here and now. Some of you who are my age can remember jamming out to R. Kelly singing, I believe I can fly, right? Some of you grew up on Space Jam like I did, watching Michael Jordan dunk over Looney Tunes and just getting so inspired. We jammed out to this song, and I think it's one of the biggest examples of presumption masquerading around as faith in our culture. The words go like this, if I can dream it, then I can do it. If I just believe it, there's nothing to it. I believe I can fly. I believe I can touch the sky. I think about it every night and day. I spread my wings and fly away. That song's so ingrained in my generation's mind that I didn't have to look up the lyrics to it before I told them to you today. We just jammed out to that thing. Millions of guys my age, when we were in high school in the 90s, jamming to that song. And here's some real talk for you. Guess how many of us have learned to fly since then? All right, you get my point? (laughs) We can believe we can fly all we want to, but there is a fatal flaw in that song's logic. None of us have learned to fly. The truth is, believing you can do it doesn't mean that you can do it. But God will keep his promises. So courage isn't saying, this is going to work out. I just know it. Courage is saying, the Lord will be with me through the whole thing. I will go do this hard thing. It may work out. It may not. But I know that in the end, I will dwell with Jesus forever. That is the spirit of Esther when she says, if I perish, I perish. Same spirit as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that say to the king who's going to throw them in the fiery furnace, our God is able to deliver us from this. But even if he doesn't, We will not worship you, for we worship 
the Lord. Good or bad, we will follow him. What's that mean for a child who's, trying to, who's being bullied into stealing a bike? Well, it means that it would be foolhardy of you to look at that kid who is six inches taller, a few inches wider, and much stronger than you and saying, what? I can take you. Let's do this, right? It means that that day could end badly for you. If you do the right thing, you might get made fun of. You might even get beaten up for it. But it means that courage is doing the right thing even when it could cost you greatly. It means that with God's help, you can look at him and say, you know what, you probably could beat me up, but I'm still not going to do the wrong thing today. I'm still not going to help you steal that bike. What's it look like for an adult who wants to bring the gospel to a friend to be courageous, knowing that it could work out for you or it could not work out for you? It means that it would be foolish to say, you know what, I'm going to go in there and this person's going to come to Christ. I just know it because I can feel it. That would be foolish. Wisdom says... I could walk away from that conversation embarrassed. I might have lost a friend in that conversation, but it is worth it to obey the Lord's command to bring the gospel to every nation. So I'm going to bring it to them, even if this goes badly for me. If I perish, I perish. Would God give us all the courage to do that? So those are our first and second points. It is right to weep in the face of tragedy. Courage is not believing that it will work out fine in the here and now. It is doing the right thing, even though it might not work out. The last point comes from Esther's response. Here's the strategy that she uses. Did you notice in verse 16, her way of saying yes is to say, go and have a fast on my behalf. That's how she says, yes, I'll do it. So she is about to do one of the most high stakes thing that anyone in Israel has ever done to appeal for the Jewish people to not be annihilated on one day. And so she says, hold a fast for me three days and three nights, every Jew in the capital city and me and my girls, we will fast as well. Now, she tells them also to pray. Now, a three-day fast in that time period was a really long time. Most of us have not fasted for three days. They had not really either then. And it was more common than to fast just in the day and not in the night. So this is really serious. What's even more serious is if you add up all the dates and the timeline, if you dig real deep on this thing, they're actually approaching a feast. And so during the feast time, they're going to fast instead of feast. So this would be like if on the day before Thanksgiving, it's Wednesday, your turkey is thawing, you go check on your thawing turkey, and you're like, oh, it's perfect. It'll be just ready in time for tomorrow for me to cook it up. And then dad comes home and says, okay, everybody, we're going to fast for three days. Just cancels Thanksgiving. It's a pretty stark thing to do. But, you know, if... 50 years down the road, a new law is written that every Christian should be killed on December 1st. We might fast through Thanksgiving and pray through that. When the situation is that dire, it calls for something like that. So it's a, it's a dire fast that they're doing here, a big deal. Esther turns to fasting and prayer. To pray is just to ask God for what you want. What are you looking for? You just turn to God, ask for it. That's all there is to prayer. It's hard to do, but it's easy to understand. Fasting is when you deprive yourself of food and or drink, maybe even water also, for a certain period of time, 
either as a way of mourning or as a way of asking God with more seriousness, like emphasizing your request, saying this is a big one, right? You can't fast all the time. You can only do that over the really big ones. Last time we had a fast as a church was when we learned that the coronavirus was probably going to be a big deal. We fasted for a Sunday. We gathered up in that fellowship hall. We prayed, and then we didn't meet for a long time after that. It's something you do to express the seriousness of your request, to say, God, I really mean this. Please, would you do it? And it's something we're called to when frightening things happen. The point here is that when you're scared, you should pray. And when you're really scared, you should probably fast and pray. Just like the model we have of courage that Esther here has. This is a way of committing yourself to the Lord and saying, God, it's you that I trust in this scary hour. What's that mean for a child who's being bullied into stealing a bike? Well, it means in that moment there... If, if at eight years old, you can learn in scary moments like that to silently ask God, God, will you help me in this moment? I'm panicking and I need you. Oh, how the adults in this room can say, I wish I had learned to do that when I was six years old. I wish I had learned to turn to God in prayer when I was scared when I was eight years old. You, you little ones today have an opportunity to develop that habit today. In the scariest moments of your life, turn to God and pray and then do the right thing. What's it mean for an adult who is intent on bringing the gospel to a friend but is scared about it? It means that you should accompany scary things like that with much prayer. And if it's serious, I mean, if you fear for your friend's eternity, it might be right to fast on Thursday and then go talk to your friend on Friday. Uh, That might just be the right thing to do if it is that dire of a situation. And what could be more dire than one's eternity that is at stake? So those are three examples we have of godly courage in terrifying times. Remember that mourning is right. Uh, Remember that bravery is not just believing it'll all work out with positive thinking. No, bravery is doing the right thing even though it might not work out. And remember to pray and to fast, committing yourself to the Lord. The way the story ends is awesome. It shows that the schemes of the wicked are doomed and God will not allow his people to be stamped off of the face of the earth. The way it ends is Esther goes to the king. It's an awesome story. You'll just have to read about it in your quiet times. So good, such good stuff. She goes before him and he does indeed grant her request. He does it in such a way that on the very day that the Jews were supposed to be exterminated, they actually defeated all of their enemies and the people that hated them. So instead of being wiped out, now they don't have to deal with all the people that were harassing them anymore. Over and above this, that wicked servant named Haman, who hated Mordecai and had built gallows for him, he winds up being hanged on the very gallows that he built for Mordecai. Uh, the wisdom literature says that the wicked lays a snare for the righteous, but then falls into it himself. This is the way that it tends to go. The schemes of the wicked are doomed. So that's the bigger point of the book of Esther. We see in the Old Testament so many pictures of Jesus' greatness, of our Lord's sovereignty. And we also see examples of what it looks like to follow him faithfully. I want to close with just one way of thinking about fear. We read in our Bible reading plan this week, and I read earlier, the story of Jesus in the garden before he is crucified in the book of Matthew. Have you ever noticed how scared he is? And I wonder if that's ever sat strangely with you. 
is Jesus, right? Why is Jesus scared? Why does Jesus have so much anxiety pent up within him that his sweat is like drops of blood on the ground? Why is Jesus saying, my soul is sorrowful even unto death? Why why is Jesus saying that? He is that scared on that night because he is about to go and face the mighty wrath of God stored up for sinners. Of all the scary things in our lives, nothing is as frightening as having to meet God and answer for our sin. That's the scariest thing in the universe. Jesus is terrified in that evening, even though he's never sinned, because he is going to go and suffer it in our place. In his fear, we find the reason that we can have real courage. He's scared. He's going to go suffer in our place. That means for those of us who trust in him, the scariest reality in the world, the wrath of God facing us, has been taken care of for us. Of all the things you could fear, the worst one has been satisfied for you. The one that even scared Jesus has been taken care of for you. Now, you've got to walk through many fearful things to get to the eternity that God has has prepared for you, but you can do it in hope. You can do it knowing that there is a light at the end of that dark tunnel. I want to speak to anybody in the room who has not placed their faith in Jesus for forgiveness of sins. Can you see the difference between walking through this dark world and knowing that you'll be welcomed into the kingdom at the end of it versus walking through this dark world and then facing the wrath of God that Jesus faced at the end of it? Of those two people, who has more reason to fear? I want you to see if your faith is not in Jesus, you have more reason to be afraid than anyone else in this room. Yet, the hour is not too late. Yet Jesus sat terrified in that garden and bowed down terrified in that garden in your place if you would turn and trust in him. If you would do this, you would find the true source of courage that we Christians in this room have. Our debt has been paid. Our God sacrificed himself for us. And so we need not be afraid of anything. Let's pray together.